Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 304, A Kingdom Divided. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Edmund, not that one, Judith, no, not that one either, and Agatha for signing up already. Northumbria was always the hot mess of the Heptarchy. I mean, there were a few exceptions where they managed to pull it together long enough to produce something important, like Bede, or when Leeds United won the premiership in 91. But generally, it's a bit of a shit show, sort of like Leeds United. And the main struggle of that region is that, honestly, there have just been too many cooks in the kitchen. The kingdoms of the Heptarchy were no strangers to the problems that can come from having multiple dynasties vying for the throne. But Northumbria took that problem and really perfected it. No one could do internecine conflict quite like the North. In fact, the entire kingdom was literally born out of a dynastic conflict between the royal families of Bernicia and Deira, and that problem just kept getting worse, with at least five different royal dynasties vying for power for the majority of the kingdom's history. And frankly, if the Northumbrians hadn't been so wrapped up in a dynastic civil war, they might have actually had the strength to hold off Halfdan and his great army. But Northumbria was conquered with relative ease because they were just too disorganized after generations of infighting. And so the rest is history. Halfdan renamed their capital city to Jorvik and shared out large portions of land in and around it to his Scandinavian supporters. And ever since, Northumbria has been subject to numerous Scandinavian rulers, and a few of them had come over as conquerors. But as we've spoken about in previous episodes, the Scandinavians didn't exterminate the local population. There was no genocide or religious-based persecution. The new Scandinavian nobility and the other Scandinavian new arrivals mixed with the locals. And that meant that the old Northumbrian dynasties, the ones that had spent literally centuries honing their skills at backstabbing, were still there. And I'm no Viking conqueror, but that seems like a bit of an oversight. And sure enough, we keep finding lords with suspiciously English-sounding names that appear in the witness lists. And one of those lords was named Osulf. In 946, the same year when Edred was crowned King of England, Osulf appeared in a Northumbrian charter as the High Reeve. You might be wondering what a High Reeve is. I mean, we've talked about Reeves, but not High Reeves. Well... The title seems to be new. Osulf is the first recorded High Reeve. Some historians theorize that the role of the High Reeve would be functionally similar to that of a king's steward, and that this title might be born out of the North's close contact with Scotland. And that very well may be the case. But it's very likely that his main duty was to carry out the king's will and enforce the king's justice in the region. But which king? Well, we can guess that because 946 was during a brief honeymoon period where the Northumbrians came under the rule of England, that High Reeve Osulf was sworn to carry out the will of King Edred of England. So that's probably what he did. But we're also offered one other important clue to the role and the rank of the High Reeve. Specifically, we know how much his life was worth. Thanks to the Anglo-Saxons using the system of having a ware guild, or a man price, Historians are able to literally compare the relative value of historical lives. And it turns out 
that the High Reeves were worth half of an Elderman, just in case you were wondering if you could afford to kill one. And actually, there's a good chance that even if you could afford to kill a High Reeve, Ozulf was probably still out of your price range, because it looks like he might have been an Elderman as well. Some historians suspect that High Reeve Ozulf was the same man who appears as Elderman Ozulf in charters from the 930s. And that argument makes sense, because you wouldn't expect the Northumbrians to elevate some random peasant to this very fancy-sounding new title. But what's clear here is that Ozulf was a power player in Northumbrian politics. And in addition to acting as High Reeve, he also held Bamborough, the traditional seat of power for the region, dating all the way back to the days of Ida and his sons. Now, history in the Middle Ages is a bit like being a detective. But here's what all these tiny clues are starting to tell us. The Scandinavians held significant troll over the southern portion of Northumbria. And that was the area that coincided with the old kingdom of Deira. It was in southern Northumbria where Halfdan, Ragnald, and others shared out plots of land to their followers. And this was also where their crown jewel, the city of Jorvik, was located. However, these little details about Ozulf and others suggest that Scandinavian dominance over the more northern portions of Northumbria, you know, the part that coincides with the old kingdom of Bernicia, might have been a little bit more limited. And that's why some historians refer to this region as the Earldom of Northumbria, or the Earldom of Bamburgh. The nobility that ruled over Bamburgh were powerful enough that they tend to warrant their own title when discussed. And there are even hints that they would exercise political independence on occasion, and that the head of that earldom was Ozulf. And while we don't have a clear lineage drawn out for him in the charters, some suspect that he was the son of an old friend of Alfred the Great's, Aidwulf II of Bamburgh. And Aidwulf II had also been referred to as the King of the Northern English. And of course he would have been, because Aidwulf II was the son of King Ella of Northumbria, the king that was famously defeated by the great heathen army. So these ancient, scheming Northumbrian dynasties were still kicking around, and they were still exercising power, even after Halfdan took Jorvik. And I find it fascinating that even after the arrival of the Scandinavians, the political fault lines of Northumbria ran through roughly the same geography. Because Jorvik essentially held the old lands of Deira, while the earldom held on to the former lands of Bernicia. Old habits die hard. But here's the question. How did the earldom of Northumbria feel about Eric Bloodaxe? Did they welcome his rule? Did they resent it? And how did they feel when Eric was ejected from the throne in 948? We aren't told. But it's interesting that when King Edred and his army marched north, they never made it into the earldom of Northumbria. They only went as far as Ripon. And Ripon sits on Jorvik lands. Furthermore, how did the earldom of Northumbria, which appears to have been more Anglo-Saxon, feel about King Edred? How did they imagine Northumbria's future relationship with the new kingdom of England? Well, the year after Eric Bloodaxe was tossed out of Jorvik and the keys to Northumbria were handed back to Edred, so in 949... We see Ozulf appearing in charters again. And interestingly, he's witnessing events in the south. Not in Jorvik territories. Like the real south. Like Wessex. He even went far enough south to witness a land grant made by King Edred himself to the Canterbury Cathedral. And that certainly sounds like he had some sort of relationship with the English crown. And that relationship might have bolstered his standing. 
because now he was appearing in charters formally as an elderman. So it looks like in addition to having a relationship with England, he was also exercising a lot of power in the north. But this was Northumbria. And while he might have had a close relationship with England, that didn't mean that all of Northumbria was on the same page. And on that same year of 949, a message was sent to Dublin. An invitation, actually, to King Olaf Citrixen. See, it seems that some of the Northumbrian nobles felt bad about how things went a few years ago. And so they wanted to give it another go. And Olaf, who had a bunch of ships and was likely already thinking about getting his old lands back anyways, jumped at the chance. And so he left his brother in charge of Dublin and headed across the Irish Sea. And if you're thinking, man, that must have really ticked off King Edred. Well, I'm not entirely sure of that. See, scholars note that Edred didn't launch any sort of military campaign in response to Olaf's arrival. Furthermore, as it was the result of an invitation rather than a conquest, and it happened within a year of Edred forcing Eric Bloodaxe off the throne, some historians actually argue that this move might have had King Edred's blessing. And why not? We now think of Northumbria as part of England, but that wasn't the case in the 10th century. In fact, annexing Northumbria had been a massive bloody headache for both of Edred's predecessors. So it's possible that Edred decided that he'd rather have a friendly neighbor on his northern border rather than a region of hostile subjects. But even if King Edred was cool with where this was all going, this is still Northumbria. You can guarantee that someone wasn't going to approve of this appointment. And right on time, in fact, at the same time as Olaf was given the kingdom of Jorvik, there's an odd note in the record. King Malcolm of Scotland raided Northumbria. Or rather, he raided part of Northumbria. Specifically, the region north of the River Tees. Meaning that the Scottish army raided all throughout Ozil's territory. And we're told that they captured large numbers of slaves and seized tremendous amounts of loot. Meanwhile... The Scandinavian-dominated south and the capital of Jorvik appears to have remained untouched. So what happened there? If this was an attack meant to thwart the return of Olaf, you would think that Malcolm would have gone to the stronghold of Jorvik. But he stayed in the north. So was Oswulf and the earldom of Northumbria rejecting Olaf's claim to the throne? And was this more of a punitive move against them? Was King Malcolm seeking to build an alliance with Olaf by crushing a rebellious faction within Northumbria? I don't know. But look at the events of this year. Oswulf appears in English charters as an elderman. Then you have King Olaf Citrixen being invited to take the throne of Jorvik without any recorded opposition from the English throne. And you have King Malcolm of Scotland invading Northumbria, but specifically raiding Elderman Oswulf's territory. It's weird. And there has to be a part of the story we're missing here. And actually, it might be a mystery that's never completely solved. But what's clear here is that Northumbria was not a politically simple, unified kingdom. It was fractured, even long after the invasion of the Scandinavians. And whatever happened in the earldom of Northumbria, Oswulf apparently still had at least a working relationship with King Olaf of Jorvik. He might have even had a good relationship, because in the following year, 950, despite the Scottish raids and the rise of King Olaf, Elderman Oswulf appears again in a charter. He stayed in power. Those raids didn't dislodge him, nor did Olaf's succession. Which raises the question, was King Malcolm's raid for another purpose? Was it a punitive campaign for an unknown slight by Oswulf? 
Or maybe King Malcolm was trying to prevent Olaf's return by attacking one of his allies. There might even be an entirely different rebellious faction that wasn't actually aligned with Osulf at all. It's completely unclear. But after these events, the record calms down. There's no rebellions, no raids, no palace intrigue leading to nobles accidentally chugging huge tankards of poison. Northumbria, for all its political seismic shifting, seems to have settled under the rule of King Olaf Citrixen. Everything goes quiet. The scribes don't even mention ducks. And it stays that way for three years. But the Chronicle was a political document. It had an intended audience. And you know, and I know, that just because the record goes quiet doesn't mean that nothing was happening. It just means that whatever was happening was taking place off camera. And it turns out that secret talks were being held. Talks about Olaf. It's an age-old story, right? You break up with someone, then after some time has passed, you start remembering the good times. And you start missing those good times. So you start talking with your ex. And after some time, you decide to give it another shot and get back together. And oftentimes, you have a friend or possibly someone like King Malcolm who knows that this is a terrible idea and tries to stop it. But they don't, because you're convinced that they don't know your ex like you do. And things are different now. Your ex has really grown in your time apart, and so have you, and things are good at first. But then you start noticing all those little things you've forgotten about, things that led you to break up in the first place. And God, they're annoying. So damn annoying. How did you forget how annoying they are? And because Northumbria was the bloodiest rom-com of all time, right on cue, some of the Northumbrians were starting to remember why they broke up with Olaf in the first place. And it didn't help that Olaf was also starting to look weak. Part of what made him such a powerhouse was his control of Dublin and large parts of Ireland. And when he came to Jorvik, he left his brother in charge of Dublin, which ensured that he still had a lot of clout and he could pull on it if he needed it. But funny story, his brother had died recently. And at the same time, his Irish enemies began consolidating power, thus endangering the future of Dublin. And that meant that it was doubtful that the Dublin Norse could spare the manpower necessary to support Olaf's ambitions in Jorvik. Which was bad news for Olaf. Especially since the Northumbrian nobles were getting back in contact with another ex. Eric Bloodaxe. You see, suddenly, Eric seemed like he was a pretty good listener. His time in exile seems to have changed him. He's really grown as a person. And so had the Northumbrian nobles. And it didn't work before, but that's because they weren't ready yet. But this time, this time it was going to work. And the Northumbrian nobles were getting butterflies in their stomachs just at the thought of Eric. And if there's one thing that's true about the Northumbrian nobles, it's that they're romantics at heart, and they always trust those butterflies. Especially when even their archbishop starts getting them. Yeah, Archbishop Wolfstan of York, the guy who was responsible for shepherding the souls of Northumbria to Christ began dropping hints of his support for Eric. Eric, the pagan usurper who was best known for killing his brothers and for being married to Melisandre, that was the guy that the Christian Archbishop of York liked. Not the current King of Jorvik, Olaf, who was a Christian. No, this guy named after his bloody axe. And that shift in support spelled enormous amounts of trouble for King Olaf. And sure enough, 
in 952, just three years after Olaf took the throne of Jorvik, the rumblings of dissent had grown into a roar. The record leaves us with a mystery, though. We aren't given indications that Olaf was a particularly cruel ruler, or that he was making the wrong kind of enemies. In fact, the record is entirely silent as to why Olaf was suddenly falling out of favor. But if I could hazard a guess, I suspect that Archbishop Wolfstan had something to do with it. You see, Northumbria was a dangerous and difficult place to rule at the best of times. But if the Archbishop of York turned against you, well, things were likely to go from difficult to downright impossible. And for some reason, Wolfstan decided to throw his weight behind Eric. In light of that, I suspect the nobility and the rest of the clergy saw an opportunity to advance themselves by switching sides. And it probably didn't hurt that Eric Bloodaxe and Gunhild were kind of exciting rulers. I mean, Olaf is great and all. He was Christian, and he could probably cook a mean Irish stew. But Eric had a sex witch. Come on. So, Sabrina and her serial killer husband came out of retirement, and Olaf was sent packing. The term that the Chronicle uses was expelled. So if you're wondering if Olaf just decided to go home because his brother died, apparently not. Olaf Citrixen was actively booted out of Jorvik for the second time. And wisely, Olaf decided that this would also be the last time that he put up with Northumbria. He was staying in Dublin for good. And in fact, he continued to rule there for another 25 years until finally deciding to retire. And when he did, he went to the place that has acted as a magnet for Vikings for over a century. He went to Iona. And there, he lived out the rest of his days in peace as a monk. Which I think makes Olaf Citrixen simultaneously the most successful and the least successful Viking king of all time. But back in 952, when Olaf was just on a boat headed for Dublin, Northumbria had come under new management. Sexy management. And on that same year, we get a weird update in the annals of Ulster. And we don't know if it happened before or after Olaf's ejection. But on the same year as Eric's coup, we're told that King Malcolm and his Scots, along with the Strathclyde Britons, invaded Northumbria again. And once again, we're not told why. But get this. We're told that it wasn't just Scotland and Strathclyde. We're also told that Malcolm had the support of the English. And considering that this fight doesn't appear at all in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it sounds to me that the English the Annals are speaking about were likely the people of the Earldom of Northumbria, so Osulf's people. And we're told that they fought against the Scandinavians of Northumbria. So there's some kind of schism here. And the timing of this event is critical, because if it happened early in the year, it can mean that there is a multinational attempt supported by the earldom of Northumbria, to oust Olaf. Conversely, if it happened later in the year, it could mean that this was an attempt to support Olaf against Eric. And frustratingly, we have no idea when it happened. But whatever it was, it certainly seems like there was a significant break within Northumbria that led the English of that region to ally with Scotland and Strathclyde against the Scandinavians of that region. And while we don't know precisely what caused this fight, nor exactly how it shook out, once again, Elderman Osulf appears to have stayed in power following the conflict. And then, the Chronicle drops a bomb. King Edred of England imprisoned Archbishop Wolfstan of Jorvik. And specifically, he had him imprisoned at Jedburgh, 
which was located in the earldom of Northumbria, in Osulf's territory. So why was King Edred of England giving orders to Elderman Osulf of Northumbria? And how did the King of England and the Elderman of Northumbria manage to imprison the Archbishop of Jorvik, considering that Jorvik was supposed to be an independent kingdom in 952, and neither of them apparently had any control over that area? Furthermore, what were the charges that were brought against Archbishop Wolfstan? Well, we're not told. Instead, all we're told is that Wolfstan was imprisoned, quote, because he had often been accused to the king, end quote. We don't know what those accusations were, nor how serious they were. All we can surmise is that King Edred felt that he couldn't trust Wolfstan. And fair play, Wolfstan has been dead for over a thousand years, and I still don't feel like I can trust him. But reading between the Chronicle's lines, it seems that while Jorvik had declared its independence, the rest of Northumbria might have retained some degree of fealty to King Edred. Maybe. Perhaps. I mean, this is Northumbria. But giving deference to King Edred very well could have been a strategic move on the part of Oswulf, because this new English king really did have a ruthless streak. The first indication was when he burned down the minster at Ripon, and then threatened to burn down the rest of the country unless they all did what he demanded. But the second sign came in 952, the very same year as this political game of musical chairs. While Jorvik tossed out Olaf and installed Eric, and while a multinational alliance fought against the Scandinavians in Northumbria for some reason, and while Archbishop Wulstan was carted off to prison on the King of England's orders, that same king was also busy at home. Because it turned out that the people of Thetford in East Anglia had killed an abbot. And that wasn't sitting well with King Edred. So he summoned his furred, and he sent them to the town, where he ordered, quote, a great slaughter to be made, end quote. King Edred ordered the butchering of his own subjects. Edred might have been the youngest son of King Edward the Elder, but just because he was the baby of the family doesn't mean that he was soft. Edred's ruling style was apparently severe. And the problem with ruling with an iron fist and ruling through fear is that it's not exactly a stress-free way to live. And his stomach just kept getting worse. Even eating had become painful. And in an effort to alleviate the problem, St. Dunstan tells us of how the king adopted a kind of medieval liquid diet. Instead of actually chewing and swallowing foods, he would just suck the juices out of his meals, or chew on things, and then spit out the solid parts. And we can assume that royal dinner parties were getting pretty weird. But beyond the social impact of having your guests pretend to not watch you fill your royal spittoon full of bits of chewed gristle, there's also the issue of nutrition. You need to feed yourself. And it turns out that homeopathic eating just didn't work all that well. And the king was getting sicker and sicker as a result. And Edred was just 29 years old. He had no direct heir, nor was he married, so it was unlikely that there'd be an heir on the way. And making matters worse, the oldest person who was directly on the line of succession was Edred's nephew, who was a tween. Not exactly the best line of succession for a kingdom that's surrounded by enemies. And for anyone who was aware of Edred's condition, the anxiety about England's future must have been mounting. But... If King Edred and the Witan were working on shoring up their hold on power, or solidifying the kingdom, it was left out of the record. Just like before, following the very eventful year of 952, 
the record just goes dark again. If King Edred, King Malcolm, or King Eric were up to anything, we're not told about it. Apparently, it was just a couple years of really weird dinner parties in the South, and I assume sexy poison parties in Jorvik, and then whatever Malcolm liked to do in Scotland. Haggis tossing? Is that a thing? But when the record starts up in 954, things were apparently already in motion in Jorvik. Because you know how it goes. You get back together with your ex, and at first, it's all hot sex witches. But after a little bit, you start to notice those things that you've forgotten about. Things that led you to break up in the first place. Like Gunhild's habit of poisoning her enemies, and Eric's enthusiasm for killing his rivals with an axe. And apparently, it was pretty bad. Because even in the fan service that we get out of the sagas, we are still given hints at the brutality of their rule. We're told about how they engaged in bitter reprisals against anyone who turned against him during his first reign as king of Jorvik. And that totally sounds like something the brother-slaying dynamic duo would do. Especially considering that this sort of tyrannical behavior is exactly what got them kicked out of Norway in the first place. But that being said, this enemies list wasn't going to kill itself. And in the silent portion of the record, it seems like the Axeman and the Supreme were pretty busy. Because by the time we get to 954, things in Northumbria were at a fever pitch. And here's a critical bit of information about the last few years and the numerous succession crises that had taken place in Northumbria. As far as Scandinavian leadership in Jorvik was concerned, Eric Bloodaxe was their only option. King Olaf was in Dublin, and after the way that Northumbria had behaved in 952, he wasn't coming back and there weren't any other nearby Scandinavian nobles who had clear claims to the kingdom of Jorvik. Eric was it, and if Eric didn't reign as king, the chances that Jorvik would be annexed by England were pretty much 100%. So whatever Eric and Gunhild were doing must have been pretty bad to lead the Northumbrians to start to turn against them. And the rumors of how discontent the nobility were becoming must have been significant, because Gunhild was sent abroad along with at least some of her sons. Only Eric and his supporters remained, and he gathered them together, and he headed north, along the old Roman road between York and Carlisle. And we don't know precisely why he went north, but some historians theorize that rather than this being a sign that he was abandoning his throne, Eric Bloodaxe was leading an army over the Tees specifically to assert control over Elderman Osulf and his lands. And that is plausible, considering Ozulf's recent actions against the Archbishop of York, which he took on behalf of King Edred. And actually, Roger of Wendover tells us that Elderman Ozulf of Bamburgh betrayed Eric. And considering that the Earldom of Northumbria was roughly the same size as Jorvik, Ozulf and his warriors very well could have posed an existential threat to Eric's reign, even without any support from King Edred. To me, that seems sufficient to inspire a march north. And that is what Eric did alongside his brother, and at least one of his sons. The trouble, though, is that Eric had made a lot of enemies. Shocking, I know. And according to Simeon of Durham, one of those enemies was Maccus Olafson. Now, Simeon doesn't tell us precisely which Olaf Maccus was the son of, but it's likely that he was either the son of Olaf Citrixen or the son of Olaf Guthrasen. Meaning that, considering how Eric came to power, Maccus must have had quite the blood feud, and Elderman Ozulf was in a unique situation. 
he knew how to contact Maccus. And he also knew exactly where Eric was. So, he told Maccus how to find Bloodaxe and let nature take its course. We're told that, quote, in a lonely spot called Stainmore, end quote, which was near the border of Ozol's lands, Maccus and his band ambushed Eric and his men. And in the ensuing chaos of battle, Eric was slain by Maccus himself. With Eric Bloodaxe lying dead at Stainmore, the throne once again was open. But this time, there would be no Scandinavian successor. Maccus, whatever his lineage was, wouldn't descend to the throne of Jorvik. Instead, the Northumbrians bowed to King Edred and accepted English overlordship. In this moment, about 80 years of Viking domination of Jorvik had come to an end. They couldn't have known it, but what occurred at Stainmore was a major turning point in the history of Northern England. Since 876, the Scandinavians had been dominant in Northumbria. And for a time, it looked like Northumbria would be united with Dublin rather than England. In fact, it was several times, and that unification nearly stuck. But with the fall of Eric Bloodaxe, Northumbria was moving ever closer to England. More than that, the death of Eric Bloodaxe provided a concrete example of the type of danger that Britain posed to landless Scandinavian nobles who happened to be seeking to carve out a kingdom of their own. Even powerful dynasties were having a great deal of difficulty holding terrain in Britain, and many of them had been meeting their end here. This battle was a signal that the age of the Vikings was coming to a close. But for all its import, the scribes of the Chronicle weren't all that impressed. They just tell us, rather matter-of-factly, that, quote, the Northumbrians expelled Eric, and King Edred took the government of the Northumbrians, end quote. Cool. The only other detail the Chronicle offers is that, quote, this year also, Archbishop Wolfstan received a bishopric again at Dorchester, end quote. And while the constant ecclesiastical updates in the Chronicle tend to be a bit boring, I think this one might be relevant to the story of Eric's downfall. Because when we last saw Archbishop Wolfstan, he was imprisoned in Elderman Ozulf's territory at the command of King Edred. But now that Northumbria has risen against Eric and ousted him and submitted to English rule, well, now we're told that Wolfstan is out of prison. And not just out of prison. He was also being given a nice little bishopric located just down the way from King Edred's capital. Considering the amount of power that the archbishopric commands, and how he had been pretty clearly playing kingmaker up there for quite some time, it seems to me that his time in prison had led to a change of heart, and that the subsequent political changes in Northumbria were very likely connected to that. Furthermore, Elderman Ozulf's role in this regime change appears to have been rather significant as well. Actually, it must have been. Because when King Edred took control of Northumbria, he granted Elderman Ozulf command of all the lands of southern Northumbria. And keep in mind, he already had the north. That means that Ozulf governed all of Northumbria. That's a lot of power to give someone. He must have done something to earn it. And I think I know what he did. King Edred might have been sickly, but he also strikes me as shrewd, ruthless, and every bit a member of the House of Wessex. Though unfortunately for him, Edred's stomach problems might have been the most House of Wessex thing about him. And they were getting worse. But, now that Edred was the unrivaled king of England, hopefully he could take some time to relax, recover, 
and enjoy a nice hot cup of broth, or maybe a partially chewed bit of steak. Meanwhile, across the channel, while Edred was dealing with all this craziness out of Jorvik, his foster brother, King Louis IV of France, was up to his neck in Frankish politics. And in 954, which is where we're at right now, with King Edred reunifying England, well, King Louis decided to go out hunting, and he fell off his horse and died. And that was a terrible stroke of luck, considering that until that moment, he'd been making some pretty big gains against Hugh the Great. In fact, he was starting to look like a king again, which must have really been irritating Hugh. And then whoops, he fell off a horse. How unlucky. And the crown passed to Louis' son, a guy named Lothair. And King Lothair granted Hugh a whole bunch of lands, because it turns out that Hugh and Lothair had been allies all along. Which was a strange stroke of luck for Hugh. It's funny how all these people just keep accidentally dying when they get in Hugh's way, isn't it? Anyway, even though Louis' death had Hugh the Great written all over it, at least King Edred could take comfort in the fact that the trouble with his foster brother was finally at an end, and that this would definitely be the last time that French politics would ever cause problems for England. And reigning in Winchester, with all this Louis stuff behind him, I'm sure that Edred didn't even take note of the fact that Hugh appointed Duke Richard of Normandy as the guardian for his own son. And Duke Richard of Normandy was an important man, because he was the founder of the House of Normandy. And as for Hugh's son, his name was Hugh Capet. He would later found the Capetian dynasty. So, when we're at war with the Normans, and then when we're at war with the Capets, now you know where it started. With f***ing Hugh the Great. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Reddit now, and you can find all our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.